Welcome to the Resilience Breakthrough Podcast. This is Christian Moore. And I'm Dave Biesinger. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's an interesting moment. And so we wanted to talk to somebody who, who really has experience with turning pain into purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of my heroes, Daryl Scott. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners out there know the story, and we'll have Daryl share a little bit for those that aren't familiar with, with his story. But um, yeah, he, he's someone, he's one of my mentors, someone who's shown me what to do with pain and um, and in forgiveness. I mean, a lot of times when we have pain, oftentimes um, there has to be some forgiveness for ourselves, forgiveness for other people. And, you know, right now in America, there's so much anger, there's so much hurt. But, you know, over the next few months we're going to be able to start transitioning in to some different solutions and some healing and i think um daryl scott is one of those people that can lead out around the, the these issues and these challenges right now he's someone who really really cares about the human condition and and you know i always tell people the number one thing you have to have to be resilient the gateway to resilience is suffering and this incredible gentleman knows um, what suffering is and, and how to use it to serve other people and how to create healing. So here, here's my good friend, Daryl. How are you doing, Daryl? I'm doing great, Christian. It's good to be with you and Dave. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like I know that you're up. You're I think yeah. you're up in the mountains a little bit. So That's the funny. Like your 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 intro, your intro. You like you rob you robot it out just a little bit. But we'll just to let everyone know that Daryl Daryl's uh, response to COVID is to um, play uh, you know make like Henry David Thoreau and head out to the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Head out to his own Walden Pond, right, Daryl? That's right. We I'm sitting here uh, right on my deck looking at uh, my little three-acre lake right in front of our cabin and right around the bend is a 35-acre lake and a bunch of trout in it. So I feel like Henry David Thoreau sitting out here looking at the water. <laughs> well, you know, I uh, Christian told me that you like to write poetry, and I would imagine that's a stunning setting uh, to, to get some inspiration. Oh, yeah, it really is. It's beautiful. So have you done any writing while you're out there? Uh, yeah, I do quite a bit of writing up here. Uh, you know, writing for, uh, I've written 15 books and I've written a couple of them with Dr. Robert Marzano, who's well known in education. Yeah. So, uh, this is where I come a lot of times to reflect and, uh, uh put the, put my thoughts down on paper and it's a great, a great place to write poetry because you're just in the midst of poetry with the yeah. trees and the breeze and the water in the cabin it's gorgeous up here yeah it's the poetry of nature isn't it yeah absolutely so uh for for those who don't know um kind of where you're coming from i wonder if you wouldn't mind just telling us um how you got involved with education i know it was under very tragic circumstances and um i, I believe it was the columbine shootings is that correct that's correct my daughter was the first one to be killed and the first mass shooting in schools here in America at Columbine High School in 1999. And my son, Craig, was also at school that day, and he was in the library where most of the killing took place. And uh, he dove under a table with two of his close friends, and both of his friends were killed. And they turned their guns on him, and Craig lay there covered in their blood, looking down the barrel of two guns aimed at his head. And he thought he was going to die. And a split second before they pulled the trigger, the alarm system went off from smoke in the room and it distracted the boys and never came back to the table where Craig was at, or I would have lost two of my children that day at Columbine. But Rachel was 17 years old, beautiful inside and out. And uh, <clears throat> she did a lot of writing. She was inspired by Anne Frank to keep diaries. And she had left our family with six diaries. And as we began to read her writings, we realized that she had a sense of destiny and purpose that was amazing. She wrote, for example, uh, on the back of her dresser when she was 13 years old, she drew an outline of her hands and she said <clears throat> in the middle of her hands, these hands belong to Rachel Joy Scott and will someday touch millions of people's hearts. And today over 28 million people have heard her story in live settings from our 50 presenters with Rachel's Challenge, not counting the millions that have heard her story through a major motion picture, through a series of television shows, 
Three Television Emmy Awards have been won because of her story. And uh, 42 books have been written that include segments of her life and story. So uh, she had that prophetic sense that her life was going to count. She also wrote that she believed she was going to die as a homicide victim before she was very old. So both her sense of destiny and reaching the world with acts of kindness and her sense of her own shortness of life amazed us as we began to read and talk to her friends. Wow, that's it's it's such a powerful story, and it really is a powerful example of turning pain into purpose. Um, I wonder if you couldn't take us back to the moment that you got the call and you found out. Where were you? Do you remember that moment? Well, I was in a store, and uh, my wife called and said there had been a shooting at the school, and so I rushed over toward the school, and they wouldn't allow us to uh, to go. They had it blocked off. And I heard on the radio that up to 30 students had been shot. They didn't know the exact number at the time. And uh, they directed us to an elementary school. And, uh, you know, that's the most agonizing day of our life. We we didn't get official word that Rachel had been killed until noon the next day. Oh, my goodness. But by 5 o'clock that afternoon, we knew because she would have tried to contact us. And we had uh, called every hospital. We we were frantic. We did everything we could, but by five or six o'clock, we pretty much knew that she was dead and that uh, she had been a victim. And especially when they started coming to the handful of parents that were left waiting for their kids and asking us what she was wearing, uh, what her hair looked like. And so that's, that's when I knew, but official word didn't come until uh, noon the next day. Oh, that's just, that's got to be agonizing. You know, I, I have two kids myself and one boy, one girl, and um, I, I love them more than life itself. And I can only imagine how, how devastating that must have been um, as that news came in. Yeah. Yes, it was. But from that, we, uh, about a month and a half after her death, I was asked to, uh, uh, we couldn't get away from television cameras because that was the largest school shooting in American history <clears throat> up to that point. And Rachel's funeral was viewed by more people than watched uh, on CNN. Their largest viewing audience in their history was Rachel's funeral. More people watched her funeral than watched Princess Di's funeral, according to CNN. Yeah, I, just, I remember sitting there watching that on CNN, CNN, just frozen. I watched the whole thing, and it was, a, it was a life-changing experience for me. And I had no idea that I was going to, you know— one day be able to connect with you. And it's, it was a life-changing moment for me. And then yeah. connecting with you was unbelievable. Because of a combination of the interviews that we were forced to do because we couldn't walk out of our home without, uh, and this was all national news, not local. And uh, so I got a phone call from Washington, D.C., and they wanted me to come to a House Judiciary Committee and speak about gun control. And I told them, no, I wasn't the right person that they should get someone else, but they persisted. They called back three times and I said, I'll come on the condition that I can speak from my heart and no one else's agenda. And they agreed. So I went and uh, gave a speech and that speech got put on the internet and just went worldwide. It was at the time the most published speech on the internet. And uh, uh, I had written a poem and that poem said, I actually wrote it three days before I even got a phone call to go to D.C., and I didn't know why I had written it. And after I got there, I realized why. And it said, your laws ignore our deepest needs. Your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage. You've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and precious children die. You look for answers everywhere and ask the question, why? You regulate restrictive laws through legislative creed, and yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. And uh, so I built a little speech around that poem, and uh, there was a senator from Georgia, Bob Barr, who stood when I finished and said, I propose that we hang that speech, that poem, next to the Ten Commandments in the halls of Congress, wow, which honor. they didn't do, but that was kind of cool. Well, I thought it's a huge honor. That'd be yeah. great for my grandkids someday to walk down and see. That's what Moses wrote. 
And that's what grandpa wrote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> so when I got back home and by, and by the way, right about that time, just before I went, it was, it was almost like a divine appointment because uh, after I had said no the first time, I wrote, well, I had written the poem before they ever called me. And I told my wife and I told my daughter, Bethany, I said, wouldn't at that time, uh, Charlton Heston was still alive and he had one of those voices that were classic, sort of like uh, Earl Jones, uh, you know, that, that booming voice. I can picture it now. Yeah. And I said, wouldn't it be cool for Charlton Heston to read this poem? And uh, the next day before Congress called me, the very next day, I was in the living room and my answering machine, back then we used answering machines, uh, came on in my bedroom and I heard this voice that I immediately recognized and it was Charlton Heston. And he said, Mr. Scott, I've been watching your interviews on television. You make a lot of sense. And I simply wanted to tell you, and I reached for the phone to pick it up and then I thought, wait a minute, that's Moses and I'm recording him. Yeah. So, cool, cool. So I just stopped and let him yeah, finish. Yeah. And just as he was about to hang up, I grabbed the phone and I said, hello, you know, like I hadn't heard anything. Yeah. He went through the whole thing again and we became friends. He died uh, not too long after that, but he sent our family a number of recordings he had done wow. and uh, pictures of himself as Ben-Hur. And, uh, and he said, the nation needs to hear what you've got to say. And, and the day after he called, I got the first call from Congress. Mm. So that piece just went ballistic. And by the time I got home, there were over 40 invitations for me to go and speak at huge events. And these, when I say huge, these were huge. These were 40, 50, 100,000 people in big stadiums all over the country. And uh, so I asked, uh, I was working at a food uh, company. I was a marketing director for a food company. And I asked for three months to leave uh, because I, you know, I thought how many people get to honor their child's memory this way. And, uh, I went and I, the, the crowds were enormous. The largest crowd was 400,000. It was the Washington mall and they had erected, uh, 17 mega screen TVs because the crowd reached so far that you couldn't even see the people on the mall there. Uh, at the time it was the third largest gathering in America's history. Wow. And uh, so I just, for two years, I was speaking in these huge venues. I went to Australia, spoke in the Olympic Center. They bust in 14,000 uh, teenagers from high schools. Uh, went to New Zealand, spoke to 35,000 kids in an open arena, uh, just worldwide. And uh, we began to realize the impact of Rachel's story because there's so much intrigue built into her story. So and, uh, before you before you go much further, I actually want to ask about that because you speak a lot about a sense of destiny and it certainly seems like Rachel had a sense of destiny, but I imagine that there was a period of discovery after the tragedy and, you know, I mean, a lot of these things you've discovered in her journals or, you know, behind her dresser and things like that. I would love for you to go back Take us back to that process of discovery as you discovered just what a sense of purpose Rachel had. Well, I have five children and she was my middle child. And uh, Rachel always had that uniqueness about her that she had a very tender heart. And she she's the kind of child that would bring home stray cats and stray dogs. And she always reached out to the underdog, the person that was being bullied or picked on. And uh, we, we didn't really know a lot about her sense of destiny until we began to read her diaries and until we began to discover some of the things that she had done at school and uh, some of the things she had talked about some of her friends with. But that's it just slowly unfolded because we I'm so thankful that we uh, recorded, video recorded, a lot of her friends talking about her. And we found out a lot of a lot about this, both the sense of destiny and purpose and her sense of a short life from some of those interviews. Mm. And uh, and then as we began to put the stories together, uh, they just became an incredible. Even to this day, uh, kids that were born, all the kids in school today were born after Columbine. 
And there's just as much impact from one of our speakers going to a high school doing an assembly as there was 20 years ago. I do believe we all have a purpose. I believe we have a, an inner purpose, which is universal, and we have an outer purpose. Our outer purpose is usually our occupation, what we do, uh, our behavior patterns, but our inner purpose is universal. All of us uh, have a sense of purpose and destiny built in, and too often we neglect the inner purpose and focus all of our attention on our outer purpose, which is really the least important of the two. If you get the inner purpose right, no matter what you do on the outer purpose level, it's going to have meaning and fulfillment. So there's so many people who live lives of quiet desperation, as our friend Henry David Thoreau said so eloquently, because they focus only on the outside purpose. They focus on what people think of them. They focus on their accomplishments. But few focus on that inner sanctuary and Rachel wrote about that. That's why she tapped into that purpose, because she said on one occasion on a rafting trip, she wrote and she said uh, in a prayer, God, I have no need for a church because you've built within me a secret sanctuary. Wow. And uh, I have found that to be true in my own life. There's an inner sanctuary that each one of us have, but we felt seldom go into that closet and shut the door and spend time in stillness. <clears throat> so uh, if you give me the liberty, I'll just quote one of my poems to deal with that, because I do believe that's where purpose comes from. It's from an inner stillness that's universal in all of us, that taps into the wisdom of if you believe in God or the divine, or if you want to call it the universe. Uh, so here's my little poem. In the quiet, I find peace. When the outside noises cease, when my mind has settled down and my thoughts no longer race, in the chambers of my spirit, I have found a secret place. There the unseen things embrace us, the invisible that's real, and we there enjoy the treasures that activity would steal. Hear the whisper of the poets as they beckon us to know of that inner sanctuary where we seldom ever go. In the quiet of my being, creativity is born, and it rises to the surface to a world that's hurt and torn. Deep within me, love replaces all the anger and the fear. In the stillness is a knowing who I am and why I'm here. And I believe that the two greatest needs of humanity is to know who they are and why they're here. Identity and purpose. Wow. If you can know who you are, find your purpose, the sky's the limit. So it sounds to me like um, Rachel certainly had a sense of her inner purpose in a way that most of us never discover, even in her, even in her short life. It's just something that's built into some, certain people that have a quest from the time they're young to find meaning and purpose. I wish everybody had that. I used to think that everybody did, yeah. but I've come to realize that everybody don't. Yeah, it's almost a natural curiosity, so, Daryl. A lot of people you know, don't have that. Yeah, that's true. I think curiosity is something that they can, uh, in fact, I'm doing a, a series right now. Christian, you actually uh, helped me with that. You gave me some input on it. Yeah. But uh, I'm doing a whole a series from a book that Dr. Marzano and I wrote called Awaken the Learner. And one of the segments is on creating, helping children uh, with their curiosity, helping flame the fires of their curiosity, because it dies in middle school kids and high school kids. Uh, children in elementary school are full of curiosity, but sometimes the system itself squelches that creativity and wants to uh, turn us into little robots instead of allowing the creativity to flow. And sometimes the biggest troublemakers, Christian Moore, like you, <laughs> in school become the greatest creative thinkers and, and world changers when they get out of school because they don't allow the system to turn them into a robot. What do you think shuts down a sense of curiosity? We're taking away uh, 
the natural environment that they learn in. We're putting them in a sterile classroom uh, facing forward, and we restrict them to asking questions by raising their hand, and we often embarrass them if they give the wrong answers. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of American history and education, it was started by Horace Mann, first public schools, who also started what was called normal schools, which were teacher training colleges. And uh, if you go even further back than Horace Mann, the people that he learned the most from were a man by the name of Johann Pestalozzi and another man by the name of Frederick Froebel. So here's what happened. Pestalozzi took in, into an old convent uh, 81 orphans from off the streets of Stans, Switzerland. Their parents had been killed by the French army, and he took them into this old dusty uh, convent, and they right off the streets, and he lived with them, ate with them, taught them for six months. He only had them for six months. He had no books, no curriculum, no video, none of that. Uh, so he took them on field trips. He took them outdoors. And then he would take objects and bring them into the convent and use apples and bricks and stones and sticks to teach them. So he used four things that continued to uh, continued to keep their curiosity at a high level. Number one was the unexpected. He would do things that they didn't expect, sometimes shocking them. But that his methodology was picked up by Frederick Froebel. Now, Froebel walked for two weeks from Germany to Switzerland to spend two years learning from Pestalozzi. But on his walk back to Germany for two weeks, he started thinking, I want to reach the children before the system the school system even gets to them. I want to reach them when they're four and five years old. And I want to create a, a way through object lessons and field trips that they can learn. And so he came up with an idea and he called it a children's garden. And if you were to say those words in Germany, it would be kindergarten. Ah, right. So he's the man who invented kindergarten. And, uh, and then when he died, he would use objects like seeds, watermelon seeds. He really liked to use sesame seeds because there were plenty of them available in his region. And when he died, they created what was called a sesame house to honor him. It was a teacher training college. And in the 1960s, a group of people got together and said, you know what, let's reach the kids before they get into the school system and let's use television as a means of doing that. What are we gonna call this? And somebody did their research and came up with Sesame Street. Very a cool. A reflection of So all, all of us have been affected by these two men, Pestalozzi and Froebel. Now, when John Dewey came along in the 19, early 1900s, our first system of education was called the heart, head, and hands philosophy. If you reach their heart, they'll give you their head and their hands. Then that changed with the three R's. John Dewey came along and systemized education, squelched curiosity to a great degree, industrialized our classrooms, uh, and it began to kill the curiosity. And uh, we, we have shifted our focus away from the individual child to performance. And when we do that, we, we lose sight of what's important. And uh, it's not so much the teachers because they have to do what the system tells them to do. But the system is a result of the philosophy that drives the system. And we've got to get back to a philosophy that focuses on the person, not the process and not performance, but the person. Right. And that's what the early. In fact, if you were to look at their academic achievement back during the Horace Mann days, uh, people today have forgotten this. But their third grade spellers, just to give you an example, they were spelling, defining and pronouncing words like Armagarius, Mendacity, Contemplatius, uh, 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 all of these were third grade spelling words. Today it's cat, mouse, dog, and our children are no dumber. They're not any less smart. It's just that we've dumbed down the system and the teachers are just uh, a lot of times helpless. Uh, although there are teachers who dare to go against the grain, uh, I did a webinar with one this past week, uh, Aaron Grewell, who uh, we, in fact, Christian and I 
and Aaron did one together. Christian hosted it. And uh, Aaron is a teacher who absolutely bucked the system to reach the heart of the kids. And her academic achievement through those kids was went off the charts because she reached their heart first. Right, right. And and so it's it's tough, though, because, you know, they they are required by the system, as you said, to teach essentially to the test, which requires X number of time. And so unless you can become really efficient at both checking the boxes for the test and carve off some time to do all of this, you know, heart stuff you're talking about, uh, you know, how else do you do it? Unless you are just a very trusting person and say, hey, I'm just going to do the right thing and hope I get good test scores. Uh, Obviously, if we change the system to allow for more time to, to be more exploratory in our education process, that would be better but how what are your recommendations for teachers who are stuck with the situation as it is today how do they make time for it well i think they can and in fact uh dr marzano robert marzano wrote in one of his books about how they can uh and part of that is ingraining uh character development and and heartfelt stories in with their lessons for example in the math books uh, that Emerson White wrote back in the 1800s, he, he would start off saying, instead of just saying one plus one equals two, he would say, Billy caught nine trout. There was a blind boy who lived down the road. Billy gave four trout to him and two to his aunt. And, and how many did he keep? So they were teaching both kindness, compassion, uh, social awareness, All of those things were built into their spelling. They were built into their math. They were built into their English lessons. If you ever get a chance to get an old McGuffey reader, I have hundreds of them in my personal library, and I'm not exaggerating. I literally have hundreds of the old McGuffey readers. They were teaching uh, spelling words and uh, paragraphs and English, but but the way they did it was weaving stories in with the things they taught. Yeah, I remember that. And even when you got education. to advanced, advanced math, they were doing the same thing. Because the human brain thinks in stories, right? I mean, if you want, if you want to say something memorable to somebody, tell them a story. They'll remember all the details about the story. But if you just give them facts, we don't tend to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have, we've, we fail to distinguish things. Uh, <clears throat> there's a great old man who wrote many years ago, uh, he was a Jewish writer, and he said, test things that differ to approve things that are excellent. Oh, wow. And my whole life, I've tested things that differ. Can I, and let me just give you an example. We were talking earlier about pain and suffering. We use those terms as though they're interchangeable, and they are not. Pain and suffering are two different things, completely different things. Pain is what you actually feel at the moment when it happens. So let me give you an illustration. You've got a little five-year-old boy or girl, and you tell them that they're going to go get a shot. They start suffering way before the pain occurs because suffering is mental. Pain is more physical. So they suffer all the way to the doctor's office because they dread what's going to happen when the needle goes in their arm. Then there's about a split second where there's a prick of the needle, a little bit of pain, but then they they suffer for another 30 minutes to two hours crying because of the pain that they incurred. So they suffered for two and a half hours, but they only had pain for about two seconds. I would also say that the suffering has its place. I mean, I certainly suffered after my daughter died. It wasn't just the moment of knowing she died. And, And I think there's a place for suffering uh, and, and as Christian talks about, we can take our suffering and transform it into something positive. But people who, uh, you and I have met people who suffered 20 years ago, somebody did them wrong. And they're still suffering today because they got made fun of or they got bullied or somebody said something to hurt their feelings. And they cling to that. They almost marry themselves to the suffering. Yeah. And they want everybody around them to suffer with them. That's when it's unhealthy. Yeah, it's almost like they weave it into the story of their identity, right? That suffering. Yes, that's right. Mm. That's right. And I've had many parents come to me for advice. And, and 
I don't know how to give them advice. I only can feel for them. But the one thing I do tell them is suffering and pain both are going to last for a, a period of time and let that play out. Let it be a natural process. But at some point, we need to revert away from the suffering part. And, and I always tell them and encourage them, focus on the good things about their life. Celebrate their life. That's what we've done with Rachel. We celebrate her life. And uh, if you can focus on the good and celebrate, then the sorrow diminishes. There's always an element of it that's there. But the pain is no longer there. The pain is removed. The sting is gone. Uh, always there will be a certain amount of, of sorrow. And, you know, we long to, to be able to see them and we can't. But it's a delicate thing and it's not, it's one that I'm careful when I'm talking to people because you can just have a blanket answer and it doesn't fit every situation. Yeah. You know, Daryl, you know, right now with the suffering in this world, a lot of people are expressing, you know, they're not feeling heard. They don't feel seen. You know, I know one thing Rachel really fought for was for people, everybody to feel accepted, seen. I remember the commercial of, you know, Rachel going in and sitting in the cafeteria with the kid that it just feels like no one's seeing him or connecting with him. And, you know, yeah. people don't feel, when people don't feel seen, you know, they, there's a natural reaction for us to fight back, to lash back. And I know that's been a part of your work with the chain reactions and all the incredible stuff that Rachel's Challenge does. And I, I see a lot of parallel what's happening in the world right now. How do we help people feel like they have a voice, they're heard, they're seen, they're empowered, and, and it's in a way that brings healing. I mean, I know this has been your kind of area of expertise, so I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we focus a lot on uh, to teachers on the, the fact that they need to create a climate and a culture where the children feel security, identity, and belonging. Those are three different things. We can help people with that exteriorly. In other words, we can help them to a certain degree uh, by comforting them with words, by encouraging them, by uh, building them up, by saying positive things to them. But the biggest way we could help them is if we can model for them and then teach them that they can have their own security, their own identity, their own sense of belonging, and nothing outside of themselves needs to be in, in place for that to happen. In other words, the world can be going to hell in a handbasket all around them, and they can know deep security, deep peace. They can know identity and they can know that they belong, regardless of outer circumstances. Most of the time we focus on trying to cure the outer circumstance problem, and, and that's good. That's, I'm not saying that's bad. We do that with Rachel's Challenge. We go into schools and we, we see kids. Uh, we did a survey with 20,000 kids in 2011, got 10,000 of those surveys back. And out of 10,000 students... Only 1,400 and something told us they felt safe at their school before we came. After we left, over 5,000 of the 10,000 said now they felt safe. And all that happened was a stranger came to their school, told them a story, created a, a, a club, and met with their parents in the evening. That was it. So the feeling of security is just as important as being secure. I agree with that. And it's so important um, for people to have a, kind of a positive story that they can tell about themselves, either individually or even as a group. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think of the, the bombings in London, you know, back during World War II, when, um, you know, everyone was kind of ducking underground, you know, they had to kind of duck and cover and there were constantly air raids and bombings. And from what I've read, you know, the people who lived through that time, you know, when the Germans were just carpet bombing the city of London, 
Um, yeah. You know, the, the people who were underground at first, there was this great sense of fear and insecurity, but eventually it, it almost kind of became normal, right? It was almost, and they kind of just went about their business. What Winston Churchill did that was so brilliant was he forged a sense of national identity for, for Great Britain during the time. And because they right. had such a positive sense of who they were and their sense of purpose as a people, they were able to weather, you know, bombs dropping on their heads every night. And they just kept calm, carried on. They kept holding school underground, you know, under very threatening circumstances. And, you know, we have, yeah. it's now almost like a meme where we've got the British stiff upper, upper lip, you know, and it's just this sense of resilience as a people that was forged during that time of great, uh, you know, of, of great threat. No matter how turbulent things are on the surface, if you go deep enough, there's peace uh, that's always there. And that same thing is true of the human spirit. If people can learn to live deeper within themselves instead of just on the surface, then when the storms come, uh, they're built on a solid rock. Wow, that's powerful. You know, Daryl, you know, I, indirectly, I mean, this gentleman was your mentor first. And I want you to share a little bit about your mentor because he, he helped me understand, you know, one of the biggest things, what really destroys fear is love. But, you know, he talked about agape and share a little bit about, um, you know, one of the great things you mentored me on is knowing the difference between conditional and unconditional love. You know, I, I get to speak now around the world a little bit on unconditional love and, um, and you're one of the people that really introduced me to what unconditional love really means. Um, share with our listeners a little bit about who your mentor is and, and how you know, he taught both of us about what real unconditional love means. Well, my, my, uh, my dear friend, who I talk to still every, almost every week, I talked to him yesterday. His name is Bob Mumford. Bob is 90 years old, and uh, he has been a mentor in my life since I was around 19 years old. And uh, Bob has got one-liners that just blow your mind. Like one of them that I love is, he asked, he told me one day, he said, Daryl, do you know what the only thing worse than failure is? And I said, what's that, Bob? He said, the only thing worse than failure is succeeding at things that don't matter. Wow. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I don't want to succeed at things that don't matter. Um, because if you fail, at least you realize you need to take a new direction. If you're succeeding in things that don't matter, you just keep doing it. Yeah, and it, but, feels, uh, it feels like you're succeeding at something that matters because right. the brain chemistry is the right. same. But you could turn back around and look back at your life and go, oh, my gosh, I didn't do anything I really would have liked to have done. Yeah, I don't want to be remembered for collecting the largest ball of string on the planet. You know, yeah. <laughs> I want to succeed at things that matter. But anyway, uh, yeah, Bob taught us that there's a big difference between three. There's three Greek words that the Greeks use to describe love. We use one word for love, love. I love hot dogs. I love my mother. I love my wife. Well, there's a big difference between a hot dog and your wife. But the Greeks had three words they used for love. The first was eros, E-R-O-S. That's where we get the word erotic, and it has to do more with uh, sensual or sexual uh, fondness, but it also has a connotation of, I will love you as long as I can use you. So it's a very selfish type of love that I will only love you if I can use you for my benefit. <clears throat> the second kind of love is phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. It means city of brotherly love. And Philadelphia, or phileo, means uh, common love that uh, pretty much if you love me, I'll love you back. Uh, it, it's, it depends on uh, mutual respect and mutual love. And, and I'd say 90% or more of what we call love is phileo. Uh, you will be my friend as long as you don't treat me bad, yeah. as long as you don't do anything that I don't like, etc. But that third level of love is uh, what they would call a divine love. It's unconditional. And it's a love that's, that does not require anything in return. I love you because I love you. And it doesn't 
just mean emotion. It means a choice. I choose to love you. And I have tried to practice that. I failed at times, even with people who strongly disagree with me or call me names or, or say that I'm off my rocker because I want to agree. Yeah. That was life changing for me, Daryl, when, you know, he shared that with me and, and as I've talked to you more about that, that's been one of the biggest things that has changed my life. And that's why I just, you know, wanted you to share that. And please keep going. Please keep going. But I want the audience to really understand what that meant to me. Because a lot of my life, I was in such a conditional environment where I'll love you if dot, 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 dot. And when I heard him explain that, I was like, wait a minute. That's what's been missing in my life. And for so much. And then, you know, being around you as I've had a friendship with you for many years now you know, you've always been unconditional with me and, and I'm raising my children in a much more unconditional environment because of what I learned from you and him. And I just, I want to share this with the world a little bit. So please keep going. And Dave, did you, I think Dave, I can see Dave nodding his head. Did you have something there? Dave? Well, I just know, I just know, um, Christian talks about this all the time in his resilience speeches. Yeah. He talks about the difference between conditional and unconditional love. And, and I just wondered if this was the genesis no, of that. Is, this is, absolutely. This is where you learned yeah, that. this is where I learned that. Yeah, That's yeah. A, It's a very powerful concept. And, yeah. you know, Daryl, you, you probably know, you know, um, we, we do live in a community, as many people do, where there is, there's a lot of conditional love. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't yeah. walk like I do and talk like I do, then I don't really want to be friends with you. I don't really want to love you. And uh, to find real friendship with someone who's different than you, but also has unconditional love for you is a gift. Yeah, yeah. And you were one of the first people to really introduce me to that, Daryl. So um, please, please share with our audience um, how it's in impacted your own life and, and create a belonging. I know you talked about those three things. Um, you know, you were just mentioning a few minutes ago about security, identity, and belonging, but I know I experience real belonging when I'm in an unconditional environment. And, um, and please keep going on, on belonging and an unconditional love. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, like St. Beattle said, all you need is love. I think that was <laughs> oh, uh, St. Okay. <laughs> uh, what the world needs now. You know, we use the word lightly, but just imagine. Just, oh, there's another St. Beattle song. Uh, just imagine if the world did simply show unconditional love to each other. Then we could defund the police because we'd have no need for them. Wow. That would be a legitimate defunding of the police because if we all showed unconditional love there would be no crime there would be no thievery there would be no murder none of that unfortunately we live in a world where uh, eros and phileo dominate uh, instead of agape but that is the goal and i fail i don't always practice it the way i should not i'll be the first to admit that but it is the ideal yeah, it takes place in the striving of it. I, I'll admit, I definitely cannot practice unconditional love all the time. My, my children will be the first to tell you that. But, you know, with my children, with everybody, I'm striving to do it. I think people feel the sincerity, the vulnerability when someone's striving to be unconditional with them. They, they feel a little difference, even if there's imperfection in it. I can tell when I'm being around someone, right. they're not being malicious. They're just truly being unconditional. Well, you know, a counterfeit, like a way I like to learn is taking a look at something's opposite. Okay. So I, I don't know if you two have had this experience, but I have where you kind of, you reveal something about yourself to somebody who is a friend and you watch them go distant. It was something closely kept. You weren't sure if you wanted to say it. And then you kind of Mm -hmm. go out on a limb and you say it and you watch the distance grow. That's painful. I've experienced that. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have, but it's painful. Absolutely. And, 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 it, and it can go one of two directions. If they, if they uh, empathize with you, it actually causes your bond of friendship to go much deeper. Yeah, exactly. But if they don't, it goes the opposite direction. You know, everything that we need, uh, I, I, I have a lot of friends that, are, that have degrees in psychology and are been, have been or are psychologists. But there's something needed beyond psychology, uh, and it's pneumology. Uh, there's, there's a word for the body, soma, in Greek. There's a word for the soul, psyche, where we get the word psychology. Uh-huh. 
And uh, all of psychology deals with the realm of the soul, which is the emotions, the will, and the intellect of a man or woman. But there's something deeper than the soma and the psyche, and it's the pneuma, where we get the word pneumonia. It means breath, but it goes deeper than breath, and it means spirit. There's a human spirit, and there's a human soul. And most of our problems are dealt with in the realm of the soul. We, we seldom go deeper and touch the realm of the spirit. And I'm not talking about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wayne Dyer wrote a book uh, that I loved called There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. Yep, yep. And I believe that's true. But w- if we stop short of that spiritual solution and we try to solve, uh, as Einstein said, you can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created. Mm. So the level where all of our problems are created is in our psyche, in our mind. The answers lie deeper than our mind. They lie in our true identity as a human being, as a human spirit. And if we can break through the veil of the human soul into the realm of the human spirit, that's where all the treasure lies. That's where there's a peace that makes no sense because it passes understanding. Wow. That's where joy, that's where reality, and few people find it. And it's there for everybody. Everybody that's ever been born has access to it. But they spend all their time on the surface, either with bodily functions or mind functions. And I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I'm rambling. No, but no you're fine. You're fine. No, that, that, I, I, it makes me wonder, though, have you, because you've mentioned a few things um, so uh, I just have to take back, just, just, let's just step back for a second. A few episodes back, early King discussed transcendental meditation with us. And, um, a few of the things that you've mentioned are, I'm like, does he do TM? Do you, are Daryl, do you participate in transcendental meditation? No, not by that title. I, I, uh, I spend time in stillness every day, but I don't have any methodology. <clears throat> I think there's a, uh, I think there's a new awareness coming that more and more people are feeling and seeing and experiencing that doesn't have to have mantras or chants or certain body positions or you don't have to go to live in a cave for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's available all the time. And uh, no, I don't have any methodology and I have no, I'm not a part of any group. Yeah, yeah. But, But, you know, just over the years. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say what's so interesting about what you're saying, because I didn't think so. I just wanted to double check. But here's the thing. You're discussing things using almost the same language as I've heard three or four unrelated groups talk about them. And it's almost like there's this emergent truth that sits beneath it all that we're all starting to discover. Yep, yep, I agree with that. Well, I I think that every major religion has those things built in at its core. But... But churches and uh, synagogues and mosques have allowed doctrine to replace universal truth. And doctrine is harsh. Doctrine will kill you. Uh, Doctrine is rigid. Uh, But truth is fluid. Truth flows. And even if you look at, and pardon me for saying it, but uh, Jesus himself said, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Wow. We've got to go beyond the letter to the spirit of the law. Yeah, it's so and true. The spirit of the law does not commit all these horrendous things that the law punishes us for. You know, you know what's so interesting about that? The, there's this there's this sense of most religions try to have a, a an orthodoxy, right? They have kind of this fixed canon, this set of rules that they live by. I mean, that's yeah. that's what defines the religion. But the what's so beautiful about the scientific method is its its goal is not to discover you know an ultimate final truth. It's a process. It's a process of testing a hypothesis and constantly evolving and improving our perception and conception of what is true, not necessarily arriving at a final destination. And uh, if we could... Absolutely. And what you just said triggered something in me because orthodoxy is the out... us trying to maintain the inward peace with an outward method. And that won't work. 
So let me give you a quick illustration. <clears throat> the caterpillar looks nothing like the butterfly. There's no resemblance. They don't travel the same way. They don't look the same way. They don't eat the same stuff. Everything about a caterpillar is the opposite of a butterfly. And yet, built into the caterpillar is the butterfly. But religion often tries, not always, but often tries to glue wings on the caterpillar and give it flying lessons. That's self-improvement, which never works. Transformation is needed, not self-improvement. And the only way transformation can occur is for the caterpillar to crawl inside the chrysalis into stillness and the darkness and the quietness and allow what's built inside of him to begin to emerge. That which is the caterpillar dies in the chrysalis and that which is the butterfly is born. And out of that cocoon comes a gorgeous, beautiful creature that's free to flit and fly all over the place and pollinate the plants and uh, is liberated. Every human being is born with a caterpillar nature, but built into them is a butterfly nature. Absolutely. And until they take the time to crawl into the chrysalis and die to their old way of life and be resurrected to a new way of life, they will remain a caterpillar. They might take flying lessons. They might glue wings on themselves, but they will never be a butterfly. You know, Darrell, how can we find... I mean, how can we create an environment for more people to find that that inner peace that um, you know you talk about that that inner who they really are that inner being um, to you know to to identify you know their real potential what they're here for and all these things you've been talking about the last forty five minutes or so um, what, what do you see some of the fastest ways we can get that how can we get it to people you know in education, in mental health, out here on the streets? How, how can we um, get this to people? Well, I think that the practice of mindfulness, which is beginning to be more popular in schools, uh-huh. I'm all for it, even though I don't like the word mindfulness, because really what we're talking about is, is emptying your mind. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. feeling. So uh, Dr. Marzano and I call it awareness. But uh, the practice of mindfulness in schools is a first, first step toward what we're talking about. But for those who really want to know answers, uh, there's plenty of books out there that they can read. The books are not the answer. The books point them toward the answer, but you have to find the answer yourself. Each individual has to find the answer within themselves. The books and the lectures and the groups can only be viewed as arrows pointing toward the truth that will set you free. So the greatest battle. But the truth will yeah. set you free. So it sounds like to me we gotta we gotta let people know that the greatest battle that they that they fight or the greatest awakening awakening is going to become within them is is eternal and we are a world that is obsessed with the with that external and um, yeah I think that's gonna be something I'm gonna really be focused on in the next few years is to is to help people have that and I see. To me, I kind of see three things. I mean, we we need great education, and that's what educators are out there fighting for. They're trying to bring great education. Then the other education is our all our our own internal education, where we find ourselves. And then the third thing we all need is opportunity, and whether that's um, economic opportunities, you know, and you know, one of the biggest things I believe that will really impact um, violence and and anger and challenges is is resources we have to get resources to people and i i think those three things coming together can um create a lot of healing but i I, man i I admire your work and i know you've done that for me in my own personal life helping me understand um where that internal motivation comes from and then it's you know it's putting that once we have that internal motivation it's putting that into action and when action kicks in then our motivation kicks in you know what I mean? Kind of bringing all those things together. Yeah. You know, uh, you know Pestalozzi that I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. he made a statement uh, back in the early 1800s. He said, uh, within the child is the seed. Every child is a seed full of his own potential. 
the teacher's job is to remove the obstacles that would prevent it from growing. That's a powerful statement because today, too many times, teachers view knowledge as the seed. And if you view knowledge as the seed, you're planting that seed somewhere. And that the place that seeds get planted is in dirt. So if you're viewing the child as dirt and they pick up on that, you're not going to teach them very much. So the seed is not your knowledge. The seed is the child himself or herself. You are nurturing that seed with your knowledge. You are cultivating it and fertilizing it with your teaching methods and with your knowledge. But the seed itself is going to grow into a tremendous oak tree or sequoia or plant beyond your comprehension if you simply nurture it. So, so during the course of this conversation, we have used a lot of nature-based analogies or metaphors. And it's kind of funny because yeah. we opened this conversation starting, you know, talking about Henry David Thoreau and how you're out here at this cabin. And I just want to dwell on one concept as we kind of wrap this up and bring it to a close. Um, you talked about how you can't glue wings on a caterpillar the caterpillar has to go into the chrysalis. You also talked about the seed that needs to go into the soil. And, and one of the commonalities in all of these things is the, the very elements that we have to fight against are for our good, right? So, so the butterfly has to go into that chrysalis, has to struggle its way out. The bird has to peck its way out of the shell. The seed, I mean, just to grow strong roots, it needs to fight against gravity. It needs to push against the soil, right? So it's the fight, the fight that we're all given in life is how we become who we are, how we find our purpose. Sometimes when we're faced with a difficult obstacle, our instinct is to turn away But as we lean in, you know, as you leaned in to, um, you know, finding purpose in this horrific tragedy that you experienced as a a man, which I can't, honestly, I just can't even imagine um, you, but you didn't turn away from it. You didn't run away from it. You know, you allowed that suffering to drive you to find purpose. And that is how you became the man you are today. Well, what you just said is so important. Don't fight against the fight. Don't fight against the resistance. Yield to it. Lean into the pain. Embrace it. And then you come out the other side with with victory. Yeah, and that. that's, that is, that's the universal principle that works. The more you fight the darkness, the darker it gets. Yeah. And so uh, I was going to say something. I forgot what it was. But you, you triggered it in what you just said. And that, that is, if we... If we can be see-throughers and not look-atters, don't look at the negative things in your life as an enemy. Embrace them. That doesn't mean that we don't have to push through and sometimes have to fight through. But if if we can do that, and, and, and oh, I know what it was, gratitude. Gratitude is another element that's often not talked about. But if we can uh, practice an attitude of gratitude and the restriction of affliction, then we will be uh, successful. Learning to be thankful, even for the negative things. We don't have to be thankful that we lost a child. But we, we can be thankful that life is teaching us lessons. And some of those lessons are very difficult to learn. So gratitude is a huge element of growth and success. That's exactly right. You know, I, I read a, I read a book this weekend. It's called the obstacle is the way. And this con- this conversation really reminds me of that book. And it's, it's really based on the writings of the early uh, stoic philosophers. So, you know, Marcus Aurelius, um, Epictetus, yeah. um, Seneca, and this wisdom, this wisdom goes back a very long time. You know, we have, we don't really have much choice, although we try to delude ourselves to think we have control. We actually don't have that much control over what's going to happen to us. You know, Hey, we could all wake up one spring morning or one, you know, late winter morning and find out that COVID-19 has completely turned the world on its head. We don't have a lot of choice or control over that. And as you've so eloquently said in this podcast, the one thing that we can control is how we respond to it and what we do. 
given the set yeah. of life circumstances yeah. that we create encounter. a productive outcome with. You know, one of my favorite quotes is there's no law in the universe that says you cannot create a productive outcome with a negative emotion or, or, or a challenge. And, and that's what you've done with your life is take a tremendous pain and created incredible productive outcomes and have had so many, helped so many people heal. And, and as we wind this up, Joe, I'd love for you to share a little bit about some of the work you do to create um, healing and how you use forgiveness to, to create healing. Would you want to share a little bit about the importance of, um, of forgiveness in your life? Yes. Uh, it was interesting because uh, way before Rachel died, I, I learned the importance of gratitude and forgiveness. And uh, so when she died, the first uh, interview that we did, we didn't plan on any interviews. They just thrust microphones in front of us. was with Maria Shriver, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife at the time. And Maria asked the question, just put a mic in front of me and said, how do you feel about the parents of the boys who did this? And I said, well, we, we as a family understand forgiveness and we've chosen to forgive. And her head jerked backwards, literally. We have that on video still to this day. And uh, she said, how can you do that? And I said, well, it's not a human trait. It's, it's a borrowed trait. Uh, but I understand what happens if I don't. Because bitterness, anger, uh, frustration will rue my life if, if I don't choose to forgive. And then I made a statement that also shocked her. I said, I would have done anything in my power to protect my daughter. And if it meant the only choice I had was to take the lives of those two boys who were going to kill her, I would have done it in a heartbeat. And I think any parent worth their salt would do the same thing to protect their child. But even though I would have done that, I can't afford not to forgive. And, uh, Tom Brokaw heard that interview and asked me to come on his show. And we did a 30 minute show on forgiveness. And then uh, Larry King had me on with Billy Graham talking about forgiveness for about 15 minutes. So we got to talk to the entire world about the power of forgiveness. And so I, over the years, I've developed a training for teachers and for students that there is a difference between forgiveness and pardon. I would not have pardoned Eric and Dylan, the killers at Columbine. If they had lived and not committed suicide that day, I would have pressed press, uh, press charges to make sure they could never do that again. Pardon is an act of the law. Forgiveness is an act of the heart. Wow, wow. And so too many people, again, test the things that differ to see what is excellent because people think that both pardon and forgiveness are the same thing. They think if my my dad is abusing me sexually or my stepdad or my uncle, that I need to forgive and pardon. No, you can forgive, but you can also take them to court. You can also report them. And so just that simple division between pardon and forgiveness has helped a lot of people over the years. And also understanding that forgiveness does not mean that I have to be their best friend or that I can't report them or that I can't even sue them if I need to. Uh, forgiveness, again, is an attitude of the heart. It's preventing the person who victimized me to keep on victimizing me because of unforgiveness. Well said. That's powerful. Thank well you, said. Thank you, thank you. Well, for everyone that's listening out there, I would encourage you, uh, especially if you're a teacher or a principal, to have why try as part of your character development, part of your social emotional learning uh, uh, element of your school. And also to have Rachel's Challenge. Our program is different from Why Try, and we do different things, but together we have a synergy that provides everything that a school needs for social emotional learning, for elements of forgiveness, the gratitude, the things we've been talking about. Absolutely. And it encompasses uh, assembly, encompasses a club, a service club that we create in your school. It encompasses reaching out to parents and it encompasses all the training that Pytri does for counselors and teachers for the hard to reach kids. So together the two organizations uh, create a whole. 
So I would just encourage every educator to to have both of those organizations uh, come to your school with their programming. I agree completely. And I think uh, coming out of COVID, uh, you know, we, we were talking to some educators out of California earlier, and they said, um, you know, the, the research shows that every single child in the education system across the country because of COVID-19 now has um, a traumatic event that they're dealing with. Um, this has been a traumatic yeah. event for all these children. And it's going to, you know, what, what used to be important for kids who were at risk or wounded has now become important for every student. to say i am just i am just jealous of you sitting up there on that pond there's nowhere, I know. I wish there's I was nowhere up there on the planet i would rather be I during know. all of this insanity no. i wish we could have done it up here <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah you got that reprieve man you get a little respite there Daryl. yeah hey love you man take care of yourself thanks for everything yep. Daryl. thanks for your time okay love you too bye-bye all right see you bye-bye thanks bye.